Hey everybody, this is Keith Rainwater. I am your designated drummer today and uh, with the Designated Drummer Podcast. And my very special designated drummer I have here today is J.D. Blair, the one and only J.D. Blair. Hello. The groove, the groove meister, right? <laughs> the groove regulator. The groove regulator. And the meister has been opted to as well. Thank you. That's right. Well, it's so good to have you here. And I have uh, met you a long time ago when... Um, I want to say it was in the early 2000s or something like that. And I don't yes, know if you were still with Shania Twain then or not. But yes, um, we talked a little bit about your uh, – you, you may know J.D. Blair by uh, just if – you're, if, you're, if you're not a drummer and you don't know if this is just mainstream, you might know him as the guy that wore the goggles back there. I mean, with Shania, <laughs> you know, you see the drummer back there yeah. playing blonde hair goggles. And you had a story uh, how the goggles came about, some kind of pyro thing or something. Can you tell me about that? Uh, the goggles uh, wound up being a look. Um, a gentleman at an athletic store in Canada, when we first started the tour, uh, found out who I was, and uh, he was a very nice fellow. I, I, I uh, wished I could remember his name, but that was eons ago. But uh, he wanted me to look at uh, some sunglasses and goggles, and uh, he twisted my arm, and so I went and looked, and uh, I picked out a couple of things, uh, and they were made by Dragon Opticals. And so uh, Shania was very kind to let me wear athletic jerseys for every, you know, whatever city we were in at the time, and uh, I uh, a lot of the times would have a baseball cap uh, on, and it was in reverse uh, sometimes, depending on the venue outside or not. Uh, the goggles wound up actually protecting my eyes from the pyro dust that would uh, fall at different times of the show. And usually, uh, if you <laughs> if you see my goggles down, something's about to blow up. Oh, you mean down meaning on? Like yep. You, you, something's your about Your forehead button. down to your eyes? Yep, okay. yep, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And um, there was an instance where the boss had to go to the hospital uh, because when you're running off the stage and if you get distracted and you look up and that pyro dust gets in your eyes, she uh, had a moment where she had to go to the emergency room for that. So I was like, yeah, I think I'll keep the goggle thing happening. So... Uh, I never had to worry about that. Wow. I wonder if any of the heavy metal guys back in the day had to had those kind of issues because they didn't wear goggles. They just right. pyro, pyro everywhere, you know, crazy. Well, we know of one musician who got burned due to pyro. We do know so, that. Yeah. Mr. Jackson, Mr. Michael Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Well, him and uh, another gentleman who was a, a right. bass player. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, so that was, I didn't go that route, and I'm grateful for it. And they've got that on video, too. I've seen that. That's one of the <sighs> cameras. They were doing a commercial or something, mm-hmm. uh, Pepsi commercial, I think, or something. And uh, mm-hmm. you can see mm-hmm. this thing go off, and you see mm-hmm. the smoke in Michael the Jackson grab his head, his hair, and duck down. And it's like mm-hmm. you could tell something. Mm-hmm. something's going on there. Wow, it's scary, scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you were properly protected, and... Uh, um, so I want to talk a little bit about your early days and how you started out. I know it said you were born in Las Vegas, but you also grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, right? Yes, sir. I'm an Air Force brat, and uh, we traveled around an awful lot. And I wound up uh, spending uh, 
the high school years in Huntsville, Alabama. Went to Lee High School and was a member of the uh, marching band starting in ninth grade during the Bob Backus era. And uh, you studied jazz, is that right? Did you? Was that there in Huntsville? Uh, in the high school program, we did, um, let me see, we did marching band, which also leaned towards the core style. Uh, we did concert band and uh, also jazz band. Right. So I was fed a lot of information during those years. And uh, Mr. Wesley uh, was one of my instructors uh, while I was in Huntsville. Um, Ron Huber was another instructor. Uh, St. John Courtney taught me on fretless bass for a while, and uh, I wound up being recruited to Norfolk State University. Uh, Where was that? In it's in Norfolk, Virginia. Norfolk, Virginia, okay. Yep. Right. Uh, John Lindbergh uh, was and is my instructor. Uh, he also taught our high school drumline, and so the, I was fortunate in that when I came into music, I was in a championship-caliber uh, environment. So right off the bat, I got schooled with setting high standards and not expecting second at yeah. that Set politely. the bar really high, Yes, right? sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. I have to... Uh, tell you folks that we are right now, this is just a quick kind of uh, uh, heads up, we are in the infamous band cave right now, where our rehearsal facility and where we do record and write, stuff like that. And Dean, our keyboard player, is in the other room doing a writing session with a pop a pop singer. And I can't remember her name, but um, so if you hear some piano and some singing and stuff like that, that's that going on. So we're just being really productive here today. I think it's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving just hearing music. Uh, I've been isolated at the house the past several years just working on my stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, to sit here in this chair, the only thing I control is my voice. So to hear the sounds that are going on in this room, it's, it's entertaining and pleasant to yeah. me. It's very nice. I There's like it. There's a lot of uh, talent in this band and a lot of... Uh Stuff going on all the time. That's what mm -hmm. I love about Nashville and about uh, Lone Star and everything is there's always something going mm -hmm. on, you know. Mm -hmm. There's hardly a, well, with COVID, we sat at home for a while, but I mean, right. there's always, other than, you know, pre-COVID, there's always stuff going on, mm -hmm. you know. There's video mm -hmm. shoots and there's, uh, you know, the, like my podcast, there's, uh, you know, concert tours and rehearsals and uh, working on albums and stuff. And speaking of which, you, and when I first met you, you had mentioned that, and, and all I knew of you before that was that you played for Shania Twain. That's all I knew. Yes, sir. And you said, yeah, I'm working on a new album. And I said, Who's that, whose album? And you said, my own. I do my own albums. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your solo material. And, like, is it, it it's, I guess it's instrumental, right? It's just rhythm-based. and uh, It's mostly instrumental. It leans on jazz funk, but I incorporate styles of, um, you know, Latin music. Um, I love the Afro-Cuban uh, rhythms. Um, I have uh, blues stuff, a ballad, and uh, I worked with a, a, a Celtic fiddler named Natalie McMaster and uh, ran around with some of the Leahy family. So uh, I appreciate Celtic music and, and the uh, discipline that is required to play that form of music. Right. So uh, Natalie played on the 2012 
record um, that was released in 2012. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fun when you can just do your own stuff. What I've always appreciated about Celtic music from an instrumental standpoint, from a melodic standpoint, is that it seems like it has a kind of a flute and a violin playing in unison together. And it's like you can't really tell which one is which. It's like, is that the flute? Is that the violin? I can't tell. Is it like they're both exactly the same? And then with some kind of rhythm going on underneath it. And uh, is that what you mean by the discipline that it takes to uh, partake in Celtic? Uh, just like in country music, if there's a discipline to what we would do playing uh, a track for radio, you know what the formula is. You do it. It's, that's the discipline. In funk music, it's the same thing. When you're swinging, it's the same discipline. You know what the rules are uh, because uh, being employed by uh, uh, Natalie was my first complete dive into the genre. We developed uh, a lingo. She would say, well, it goes, it's the pattern I'm hearing in my head. It sounds like such and such and such and such. And that's a reference. She's referencing yes. something else. And I would hear what she was doing, tie it into the discipline of drum world for a rudiment and say, oh, you're, you're talking about an inverted tap six. And so because she wasn't familiar with the inverted tap six, we called it a diddly. Okay. So when she said, J.D., can I have a diddly right there? I'd know what she was talking about, and it, and it was just really, really cool. Uh, instead of the flute uh, with Natalie's outfit, we had uh, uh, bagpipes. Okay. And the bagpipes, oh, wow. my goodness, you talk about a naturally loud instrument, and you have to have good lungs you're you just basically off. blowing up a bag oh, full of air yeah. and pressure and, and squeezing yeah, it yeah right? it's incredible i've seen those guys play bagpipes it's just like blowing up a balloon the whole time you're playing it's like and playing the notes you know? if if folks aren't familiar with the bagpipes <laughs> if you reference ac dc there's a track uh, and I apologize, I'm, I'm getting old. I can't remember the name of the track, but there's, they've got bagpipes on the track. And man, just the energy of the band and those pipes when they kick in is just phenomenal. That's amazing. I love diversity in music like that, where someone dares to try and put something that's not traditional in something else and Absolutely. fuse them together. And it's just like, to me, that's what music's all about. That's Absolutely. what makes it... That's what makes an artist who they are, and it sounds like when you hear Dolly Parton or you hear Kenny Rogers or you hear uh, anybody, it's, oh, that, you know that's them immediately. And that's what I love about the fusion of different kinds of music mm -hmm, together. Mm -hmm. So um, I was going to ask you, uh, talking about albums and things like that, your connection with Victor Wooten, who is a bass player. Right. And I've seen shows that you guys have done before. Where it's just you and him. It's right. bass and drums, and yes, that's sir. it. And that's the, that's the whole show, and yes, it's amazing. Sir. Can you tell a little bit about how you met him and, and, and how that uh, relationship through, uh, came into fruition? Yes, sir. Uh, when I went to Norfolk State in uh, 1979, uh, I was taken around town to meet some of the players, and uh, ironically, one of the bands um, uh, was the Wooten Brothers, and I met them back in 79, 80, and uh, they were great players. A lot of uh, 
James Genus and a couple of other cats ran through that that um, outfit, and it was just phenomenal. So time passes. Uh, I moved to Nashville, and I run into Victor, and we catch up, and Vic has this idea to uh, do a duo, and we wound up eventually calling that uh, Two Minds, One Groove. And uh, that... Uh, <laughs> wow. That, that says it all, experience. doesn't it, right there? That was an experience. Two minds, one groove. So um, I saw a thing where you guys were, I mean, you had it worked up. You had a show worked up where you guys probably rehearsed and figured stuff. Even though it looks like you guys are just jamming together, there was a thing where he goes, he goes, J.D., what? J.D., what? J.D., what? J., what? D., what? J.D., what? And it was like, how did you work that up? What, what did that come from? When you when you mentioned uh, about rehearsing, when we got ready to do our first run, we did rehearse. Uh, I think it was at Nashville Cartage and Sound. And a funny story, uh, Vic bought a sampler. He was going to put some of the vocal stuff on the sampler. Uh, Willie and those guys doing their thing, uh, some of the harmony parts and everything. And I had to learn how to trigger that and play and all this. And I had taken meticulous charts. And uh, that blossomed into a disregard the charts because we're live and Victor wanted to just just wing it. (laughs) So all the charts went away and it wound up being a visual thing and keyed in on listening. So you've heard it said music is a language. We communicate it through the instruments a lot of the time. And uh, that was a very exciting uh, gig for me because it kept me on my toes. And like you said, it looked rehearsed, but those things happen uh, on the spot. Like, what did he say? That song happened at a sound check uh, when we were first going out and we Vic will jam at the sound checks and at the time we'd record and uh, we'd suss out stuff that we thought we might could do something with and so I remember Vic saying so yeah you think we can pull this off tonight like why not you know and that what did he say is on um, uh, I think it's the what did he say uh, project from uh, Victor Wooten and it's a live recording and that happened in real time. And uh, Kurt Story was the engineer, and he figured out a way to loop our vocals in real time live. So that way we got away from the sample stuff and started creating our own uh, live loops. That was a lot of fun. That is fun. And man, you guys playing together, him, his talent on that bass, I mean, he has full command of that bass as a percussive instrument. And then you're grooving, you're laying down time, and he's just, I mean, it's like you could tell there's some communication going on. There's yes, some grooving. Yes, sir. And you Thank talk you. about a tight, tight, tight groove. Thank you. And I, just, I would, you know, it would be, I'm sure you probably have already done this, but it would be great to hear you guys both on other people's records. You know, have you guys played on other people's records, you and Victor? We're, the first thing that comes to mind is India, R.E. Um, I think the name of that track is called Summer. Andrew Ramsey called us in for that track and um, now I'm like Mr. Paul Lyme I can't my 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 memory stuff is hazy these right. days but that one comes to mind right off the bat that would be amazing you and Victor 
playing as the rhythm section as the bass and drums on a record, on anybody's record. Killer, man. I mean, that's just Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So the early days, you are you moved to Nashville. You're playing around different artists and things like that. How did the whole Shania, if it's okay if we talk about the Shania thing, how did yes, that sir. whole thing come, come about? Were there auditions? Did somebody recommend you? Yes, sir. Uh, Crystal Tallier Farrow, I always credit her for recommending me to uh, Shania's camp. I, uh, the way I heard it is that they had started running out of drummers to listening uh, to listen to, and uh, ask her, do you know anybody? And she said, you heard of the Groove Regulator, J.D. Blair? And no, have not. Well, he's in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, you should give him a shout. So, uh, uh, management called. Um, I thought it was a, a joke at first because I had just seen her video on the TV and they had the race cards and stuff and I was like man that is so cool that's that's, that's kind of refreshing that's for country for the video music. I'm going to get you I'm yes get you. sir and, and I'm like wow and so now I get this call it's like yeah I'm such and such and I represent Shania Twain want to know if you'd be interested in coming up for an audition I was like yeah right he's like no really and so on and so forth so long story short I went through uh Three audition processes. The first one uh, was in this humongous mansion out in the middle of nowhere outside of Albany, Georgia. Uh, I auditioned for the band day one. I was supposed to come back home that night. They asked me uh, if I wouldn't mind uh, coming back to play the next day for Twain. So I'm like, well, shoot, if we got this far, heck yeah, I'll come back. So <laughs> they put me up, came back, played again. Uh, Shania was there, and uh, that worked out. And then the third audition, uh, several, several weeks later, when we, we were getting ready to go out to start the tour, there was uh, a live television show. Uh, and I remember coming out of the the, uh, the rehearsal sound check and I went and sat outside on the curb and I was like, okay, so far so good. And I got a call from management on my <laughs> cell phone and so I went into the office and I said, okay, J.D., uh, suppose we need to talk to you about salary. I was like, what? It's like, yeah, how much have you uh, made? How much do you want to make? And I was like... I was like, uh, well, I, I've asked for this much since living in Nashville, but nobody ever seems to be able to come up with it. So like, okay, well, let's say we start you off with that, and um, we'll double it and uh, move along as a tour progression. I was like, okay. And after that meeting, I went back outside, sat on the curve, thank, thank my Heavenly Father for a huge financial and career blessing, and I called my wife and told her, and uh, that I'll never forget that day for sure. You called your wife and said, "Start looking at houses." I'm just kidding. No, no, you're, <laughs> you're not kidding. We did. We didn't talk about the house thing uh, later on uh, in the tour. I was out and she called me and said, honey, I got a house uh, I'm looking at. And I'm thinking, uh, oh, my God, here we go. And when I came in from a break, we went out and saw a house. And um, I was like, well, if this is what she wants and if the Lord's willing, we can 
get it and not lose it. Let's move forward. And uh, I remember getting the call. We were playing Wolf Trap. And uh, you know that that just about to hit that midnight hour for all the paperwork and everything right. to clear to get uh-huh. all the right. finances and stuff. Man, I got that call and everything went through and there's no problem. I, that was another blessing uh, that I'll never forget. And wow. we're still in that house to this day and probably about seven years or so, and then it'll be paid for. Hallelujah. Wow, that's amazing. So for the up album tour, what was the rehearsal situation like? Was it like a month of rehearsals or was it, because from what I understand, the standards were pretty high for that band and that is that many people, how many people were in the band? I know there was like three guitar players and a couple um, fiddle players. and Rather than count, I'm going to say there were several people uh, playing with Shania's band uh, has been the most physically demanding and cerebral demanding gig that I've ever encountered. Uh, Having dabbled around with the let's wing it, let's create it as we go, uh, the jazz mentality where you're surrounded with all these cats that can chop and you just go for it and create. Well, I got exposed to Twain World and where I'd never in my life been exposed to musicians who specialized in recreating a record. Right. Never seen that before. So the decision was made early on that we are going to make this concert sound sonically just like the record, whether we have to use some tracks or whether we have to, you know, play it ourselves or whatever. It's like sonically going to be like, like get the DNA of that and put it in there. That is a mutt-laying mindset. Mm -hmm. Uh... I understand there were about 80-something drummers that went through uh, the auditioning process. And if, uh, if you were to ask Mr. Lime on his session uh, sessions with Mutt, several, several upon several, several snare drums right. were used to get sounds. Mutt hears every, everything. Every nuance and of every that instrument. Boosting your your game to where you have to keep up and learn how to listen and hear what, try to hear what they're hearing. You can always figure out the practice regimen. I, uh, because I had to play hard every time I sat down, uh, my metabolism was very high. So uh, in this environment, we had a personal chef that took care of all the meals and I would eat listen to everybody chat for a minute, and then I go to bed and get ready for the next morning run-through. So um, I learned a lot from that, and that band, uh, I greatly, greatly respect them for their skill set. It was phenomenal. And so far as tracks and live, I'm speaking from my vantage point because I know Mm -hmm. in where I sat, Mutt gave me permission to play what I wanted. And, and when we had that conversation, it, what led up to it was he comes up, uh, uh, we're on a, a break at uh, Lake Placid getting ready to start this tour. It's like, so JD, man, when do you think you can lose the charts, man? And I looked at him and I was like, well, I could get rid of them, but because of my mindset, 
I tend to hear and react and play. And with all the lights and stuff going on, I might get caught up in the moment and put some heat on something that really it wasn't on the record. Right? Yes. <laughs> and I was like, I could do it, but if I have the charts, I can read what's written and we're good. And he paused and he, he nodded his head and he said, keep the charts, man. And he walked away. <laughs> so I notated literally all the licks that were on the record and some I changed to to the way that I would play like the eighth notes that snare, that type of thing in the roll down. Those were, were cool and, and they became like the, the, the basis for the feel setups. And then you've got the Tom stuff, the dum 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 I think yeah, there right. were four Toms on the uh, record, but I, I was uh, fortunate enough to get away with that using That song, You Win My Love, right, that has those Tom... I'll take your word for it. That, that was Paul Lime overdubbing those in the studio. Wow. He played the groove and he went back in later and asked for more channels. and doom, doom, doom. But he actually said in the podcast the other day, he said that he has a way of sticking that and he can teach, he teaches people how to uh, in like uh, clinics and things like that, how to actually stick that mm-hmm. line, the, mm-hmm. the tom part with mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the whole beat and everything. Mm-hmm. So he has a way of doing it. Wow. He could do it, but in, wow. at, on the records, he actually overdubbed that. You know, he's done that on Kenny Chesney records, and that's kind of he's kind of almost known for that. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. And, and he calls it the Shania thing because that's where it started. Wow. <laughs> well, out of out of respect to what you you had, uh, mentioned about the title and the song, again, all of. The past for me is the past, and I have no shame in telling you uh, I don't know half of the words to any of these songs. All I focused on was the chart. Am I playing the right pattern? Am I at the right feel? Am I in this chart where I'm supposed to be to kick this band? Am I click? Wow. That was my focus. And from what I understand with the audition process, uh, I heard that I made the click melt in the audition process, which... Which means me, you're playing so tight with the click, you don't even hear the click. It's being right, buried by your notes. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm just like, because of what we talked about, mm-hmm. the way it all started, you're just doing this because you're supposed to. Yeah. And then you figure right. out how far ahead to play against the click Mm -hmm. for what this music requires in this section or how far to lay it back and when to be spot on. So, uh, again, everything that I've been blessed to enjoy in my career, I credit to my creator uh, first. You were born to do this. And that's that's a lot of us pro drummers, we feel that way. We feel like... When we were coming, you know, Paul Lyme mentioned the other day, I keep talking about Paul Lyme. He mentioned the other day when, uh, before we were on, you know, on recording, I said something about, uh, you know, that uh, when we're first starting out and that kind of thing, you know, some people have a choice of, well, I could be a banker or I could go to college to be a doctor or I could be a drummer. And he mentioned, he said, there wasn't a choice. It was no choice. And he doesn't mean that he was forced into it. It just means that in your mind and in your soul and in your heart, there's just nothing else you want to do. And that's the way I felt when I was growing up. It wasn't a matter of, am I going to be a drummer or not? It was a matter of what band is it going to be? What style of music is it going to be? Because I was open to all styles and I just ended up in country somehow. That's awesome. That is awesome. And so you, um, when you were young, did you feel that way? Did you feel this, I am a drummer, and that's what I'm going to be? And I would have to lean on the 
uh, yes part because before high school, uh, the Lincoln Logs, uh, I would pull out the uh, longer logs or the green slats that right, were used for the Those root. were drumsticks, man. Right, right, <laughs> and beating on, on furniture and pots and pans just like everybody else. And uh, uh, it just wound up being a thing that worked out. Right. It worked out. Right. So um, you have just been preparing all your life, all your adult life, and even your adolescent life to be a pro drummer. And like you said, when you were in school, the, the emphasis on getting things correct and, and the quality of the playing and the music and the syncopation, that's just in your DNA. That's just who you are. And that eventually got you the gig with Shania because they're listening to your playing and your groove along with the click. And they're like, that's the guy right there. He's the guy we want, you know? Well, thank you for that. And, uh, Talking about bands, I, I spent time uh, in Winona Judd's band uh, for a while. and uh, Was this before Shania or after that? This was uh, after Shania, and Shania was on a break, and uh, Winona was very kind, and she acknowledged, like, look, I, I'm going to have you in here while I can, and I know that if uh, Shania kicks off, you'll be out of here. So we rolled and had a great time, and that band uh, during that era was just awesomely good yeah. and it was a different type of level of awesome and that uh, it was everybody would do what they needed to do when it came time to play and, and, and it was not the same intensity and duration of practice time to prepare it's like we know why you're here. You know what you're supposed to do. Let's get it done so we can go home. Right. And I was like, wow. So if they're waiting on me to learn these tracks, we don't have to be here all night. It was awesome. And then getting on the tour bus, as you know, tour buses, uh, you're with your band family all the time. Mm -hmm. So with this particular tour, uh, the Twain tour, I was on, uh, I wasn't on the band bus. I was on management's bus. And uh, Allison, the fiddle player, she rode uh, that bus as well. So she was laid back, kind of reserved. And, and I kind of like lean on that side of being quiet and chilling out and, you know, yeah, low profile. And so... Uh, that was nice. And when I would go visit the band bus, like after show and go hang out for a while, well, you got party mode and everybody's playing the music and a bunch of voices are going at, a, at one time. And uh, to get back to the management bus where it's kind of quiet, it's like, ah. Now, Winona's band bus, everybody was on the bus, but everybody was laid back. And I was like, wow, this is cool. You look over here, one somebody's in a corner reading a book, somebody else has got on headphones and so on and so forth. So I, I really, really uh, credit uh, Winona and her band for uh, making my little stay with them just a, a great experience. How long was that when you were with them? With I, the I think uh, I will say several months. I'll say several months. Because we were getting into the swing of things, and then uh, the Twain camp call, and I had to uh, leave. But that was a very, very, very fun group to be around. Wow, that's cool. And you've just been able to 
keep doing your thing? And then you, did you start making records, your own records, uh, around that time, or was that uh, later? Or? I started when I came to Nashville in 90-something, whatever year it was. Um, uh, I think I'm working on my fifth record now. Um, it should have been out, but due to COVID and all this and mm -hmm. everything else, it's just been on hold. So uh, uh, Victor Caldwell masters my records, and he'll be back in town later this week. And then when he gets back in and sells in, I'll give him a record to a master, and then we'll get that ready to dry. But some of the artists uh, on this project, we have uh, the late, great George Duke. Um, wow. Victor Caldwell is on there. Uh, we have Chops Horns, uh, Live Horns, they're on there. Uh, Jeff Lorber and uh, John Patitucci and uh, Jeff Coffin, Kelly O'Neill. This, this is really cool. It's a star-studded, Lord's good cast. There, the Lord's you know. good. <laughs> I bought a Jeff Lorber record when I was in high school. Yes. Somebody told me, said, have you ever checked out Jeff Lorber Fusion? And I said, no, I don't. Who's that? You know, and, and I went immediately and to the record store and bought it, and I was, that was so great. I think yes. it was Dennis Chambers playing. Well, I Dennis, think. Uh, uh, the gentleman's name, uh, I was about to get him mixed up with uh, uh, another fusion group, so I won't won't say. Uh, Dennis may have played with Jeff. Uh, after this is over, I'll check and see, <laughs> but. Yeah, I any of the cats that played with Lorber back in the day were spot on, spot yeah. on. That was good stuff. My, I started getting into fusion right after high school, and I was in a country band and all that. And then mm -hmm. I just, I actually, it all—it's just one of those funny things. I was, I was on a date, and a girl played some Gino Vanelli. Gino music. Yeah, she had a cassette yeah, yeah. of Gino Vanelli, and it was the Nightwalker album, and also. Uh, the um, Brother to Brother album, uh, and she had it dubbed on a cassette, wow. both of them. And I was just like, I couldn't concentrate on our date because I was just going, what is this music? Yeah. Who is this? Yeah. And she said, that's Gino Vanelli. And I'm like, you mean Gino Vanelli, the, the, the crooner, the, the ballad singer? And, and I said, this was not ballad stuff. This was like yeah. really serious fusion, best players in the world kind mm -hmm. of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I became a fan of fusion, of, of kind of jazz and uh, funk and fusion and stuff like that from that point on and I haven't stopped when did you uh, check out weather report weather report um, probably in the mid 80s or something mid 80s like that. Yeah. and what was your with Roger when, Hawkins and when, when you heard weather report uh, for the first time um, now I have to ask you is that with um, you're talking about with with Roger Hawkins playing drums, right? Uh, Peter right? Erskine, Peter oh, okay. Erskine, or okay. Alex Acuna, okay. were were playing during that time. And oh, so I was thinking of traffic. Jocko, I was thinking of traffic. Jocko, yeah. Jocko Pastorius was yeah. on bass. Uh, he replaced Slim, who went off to go play with Billy Cobb, and, and I was wondering what your take uh, is on when you heard. Uh, that group for the first time. I cannot remember. I just remember it was a keyboard player we had when I was in the group Canyon, and he had a whole bunch of you know cassettes of, mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. you know this is back in the day cassettes, right? Right. When right. you traveled on the road, you had a little Walkman and a bunch of cassettes yep, in yep. your bag, you know. And he had a bunch of that stuff in there, and we were listening to that. And uh, and I, I what was my take on it? Um, I just remember 
the tremendous skill that the drummers have to have to play that kind of stuff. And I really appreciated that because if you try to play that kind of stuff yourself, it sounds like, oh, yeah, no problem. But then when you try to actually play that, some of the funky stuff, it's just like, you know, can't do it. It it freaked me out when I, uh, my first year at Norfolk State, uh, the section leader, John Jenkins, like, man, you ever heard of Weather Report? And I was like, nah. It's like, hey, you need to check them out, man. They're really good. So like I said, gave me the cassette, and I, I put on a Weather Report, and I was like, it was the type of music that went so far over my head, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't, and that was the first and last time uh, during that period that I listened to them. And so then you fast forward several years later, uh, getting to find out who Jaco Pastorius was and his footprint with the group, going back listening with those type of ears that have a better understanding, man, the stuff that they were cooking back then is yeah. just, they were ahead of their time. Those kind of people think on levels that, that you and I, or, or that, that, you know, just that's normal people just can't imagine, you know? It's a whole Vinny Caliuta, the, the, Vinny. like, God, to just, just to tap into his brainwaves. It was just like, how do, you, how do you play a groove with 16 beats and knock off the last beat and then start over again yeah. uh, yep. every, yep. every yep. Yep. 16 yep. beats? I mean, yep. what? I mean, yep. that's just yep. crazy. Yeah. But uh, so uh, I wanted to, oh, yeah, we have a mutual friend. I wanted to tell you, Roddy Chong. Roddy. He, he played with us for a couple of years. He was, Kid, was, I didn't after, know that. Yeah, after what it would have been, like you said, you were with Shania for a while, and then she took a break, and then it was during that break, and it was probably the early 2000s, 2002 or something like that, um, and he joined our band, and he'd just freshly coming off the road with Shania and uh, joined our band for a couple of years, and he was a personal trainer as well, and I was the only—he offered his services, and I was the only one in the band and crew and everybody that actually took him up on it, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. he trained me. Um, not every single day, but about two or three days a week, he trained. We trained yeah, together. Yeah. And that, physical that makes training. sense. That yeah. makes sense. When you mentioned that, uh, tying back into the Twain outfit, a lot of people looked at us as, as a mutated rock band, and a lot of people thought that we were partying, uh, because of what they saw on the stage, just a bunch of cats having so much fun, and it's just a nonstop party. Well, I was surprised in that all of those cats were so health conscious and, and work. I was like the slimmest cat in the whole group. Everybody else was like, they go to the gym and taking the, the protein shakes and all, and you, like you said, yeah. with Roddy, it's it's a true story. That's that's what they did, man, and and that was really, uh, really impressive to me. And I'll, I'll say this, and then leave leave it alone. Uh, going back to uh, reproducing the record for a live venue, I remember we were. I think we were in Anaheim at the Pond, and it was this big old swirly arena. This is and I, right? Yes, yeah. and man, I remember us busting our humps for sound check. And I remember somebody uh, got word that Mutt had been told we really need to open the doors now. And he wasn't satisfied with the sound. So we kept on grinding until that was reached. And then later on, we read the newspaper article that uh, the band 
obviously was playing to tracks because it was so pristine. Yes. And then the guitar players didn't have any chords coming out of their guitar, so they were thinking, it's like, if you're going to be a writer and critique, know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're wireless. They have wireless rigs that go in their back. Thank you. And that was a hilarious read for us, man. It's like, well, you obviously can't make everybody happy. But as long as you know what you're doing within that group and it's all legit, it's a good day. Yeah. It's a good day. But, you know, Roddy Chong, back to Roddy Chong, he was one of the kindest, uh, coolest guys I'd ever met. And And then when I found out after... He had, um, I think, I, th- I want to say either Shania was gearing back up again. You know, like you said, you know, they call you back again. Either Shania was gearing back up or he was going to be on the road with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Yeah, yeah, Or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, when he yeah. left us, he all sent us, he gave us all a card that said, it was my most pleasure in my life to play with you guys, and I really appreciate everything. He gave us all a card. Nobody's ever done that before. Mm-hmm. And uh, he mm-hmm. then I found out later he was an actor, that he's an actor. Yeah, and he yeah. Had done, I'm like, the guy is just amazing. And I was just like... Must have been great to be in a band with those that kind of caliber of folks that work out and they take care of themselves. And they... if I could, if I could do it over again, um, I would go out and live more. Uh, my mindset was, hey, look, I got to practice and stay on my game. I had uh, an electronic kit that I had on the road with me, so I could practice in the room on days also. Um, uh, the cat saddled up on a day off to go visit Stonehenge. I opted out of that because I I got to practice. Mm-hmm. And and at the time, it seemed like we're disciplined and gung-ho for the art. Yeah. But now being on this side of the career, looking back on opportunities that I'll likely never have again— if if knowing uh, then what I know now, I would have put sticks down, gone out, seen Stonehenge, had a good time, learned and touched some things, then come back to the room and then practice as right. opposed to trying grinding all day. You know, that's the end of that story. I'm, yeah. <laughs> well, you got people like um, Travis Barker that are insane practicers. They, that guy to see or to hear that he practices sometimes up to six to eight hours a day, six to eight hours practicing, like not just playing the gig or playing in the studio, which that's one thing you need a little breaks in there. He practices for that long for just days on end, that kind of, and you see it in his playing. You see that he has total command of that instrument. His, that drum kit is a portion, is a part of his body. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, it's amazing. And, And I'd really have much respect for, Guys like yourself and guys like that that Blessings just are so dedicated you. to their craft that and and you know I teach my students about about being a pro, being a, what sets pros apart from say just an amateur, and it's stuff like that. It's stuff like practicing all day, every day, um, not letting your guard down like that, not getting out of practice, just, right. just every nuance of your instrument and mm-hmm, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you would agree. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> so what? Um, when you were first starting out, 
what kind of mistakes did you make along the way that um, that we can pass along to some other drummers that may want to know uh, what to expect once you start going pro? Uh, could it be an equipment thing? Could it have been a um, uh, you were late to something or, or, you know, just anything that maybe you stumbled along the way? You're like, oops, well, I'll never do that again. I respectfully will say that I can't recall of anything uh, in that way. Uh, again, due to the fact of the, the, the people that I have been blessed to be surrounded by. Uh, when I was younger, I was getting information, like, like in high school, information from my instructors and my peers. Uh, Ellard Forrester is one of my, my uh, mentors. Kelly Gravely is another uh, mentor. They gave me information at a young age so that when I got to the point that I could use this information, I knew what they were talking about. For instance, uh, Elliot Forrester, while I was at Alabama A&M University, he came in, he's like, yeah, you sound, you sound really good, man. Uh, you need to focus on that two and four though. But, you know, listen to the, what's playing on the radio. He is the first cat that told me that. And I stopped and I thought, okay, and, uh, Omar Hakim was playing drums for uh, Madonna and, uh, and Weather Report, and uh, Ricky Lawson had been with the Yellow Jackets, and I think, he, uh, I think he did a stint with Michael Jackson, I think. Uh, I know Sugarfoot is, was the, the main drummer for Michael, but he said, all of those cats, man, they focus on that two and four, and one of my favorite players is Steve Jordan. Right. And I would break my neck to get in front of a TV every time uh, David Letterman's show mm -hmm. came on because the way they hit that pocket on that opening oh, yeah. track and every time they played, th those things kind of influenced said, this you is the bit. way to yeah. go. So when I was younger, I did all the fusion stuff and doing this and flipping and all but I was told the money is in the back beat, and I will echo that sentiment because that back beat is what kind of got me through to where I was blessed to get to. They're not interested in how many 30-second notes you can play in a fill. Yeah. They want time, solid time, and pocket. Yeah, that is very true. You know, Paul Lyme mentioned a technique that they wanted used back in the 80s that some of the producers wanted on their record, that feel, that, that laid-back feel. Yes. He called it the wet fish, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. your left hand on the snare. Imagine if you're holding a wet fish and you're coming down on that backbeat. It lays back just ever so slightly behind, uh, and he calls it the wet fish thing. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. So there's that, and there's which I'm a firm believer in, just good time, just yes. good solid, like yes. slice it. Even slices, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I think there's a place for each one, for Absolutely. each feel, you know, depends Absolutely. on the song, it depends on the record. And um, so um, one of the other things, oh, by the way, I wanted to mention that we started talking about Roddy Chong earlier. Roddy Chong is the fiddle player. He played fiddle with, mm -hmm. uh, with Shania, in case, because we didn't mention who he was or and what he did. And percussion and vocals yeah. and probably keyboards. Very prominent out front, you know waving his arms around, playing the fiddle, and very, almost like a dancer, you know, in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was almost a like a choreographer or something. A lot of energy. Yeah, a lot of energy. And uh, so that's who Roddy Chong was. I know we kind of forgot to mention that. We just mentioned his name. Um, 
What uh, advice would you have for youngsters that are trying to break into the business? And I know now is a totally different time than it was back then. And there's, but the one good thing we have is that we still have to put butts in seats. We still have the live thing, you know. Um, Record industry may have taken a dive and may have now it's all streaming and this kind of thing, but uh, definitely we have live shows and there's a lot to learn there and there's a lot to pass along to this new generation of drummers that are coming Mm -hmm. along. Mm -hmm. And uh, what advice would you have to give a drummer that, say, already has the chops, they already can play, and they want to break into being a full-time drummer? Thank you for asking that question. I'm uh, To your listening audience, I'm just speaking um, for what worked for me. Uh, and if it worked for me and somebody wants to know, I credit my Heavenly Father first in everything. Uh, it's, it's, it's no magic. It's, any, it's nothing like that. It's just based on faith. And if you live long enough, you'll see things, you'll hear things uh, that you'll need to be able to verify as whether it's truth or not. And so, uh, yes, I had a moment at the crossroads, and I very seldom have talked to anybody about this, but I had a moment where I was offered a deal by a dark element to... If I sold my soul, I would get all the musical benefits and awards, money that I had ever dreamed of. And I remember being in the room thinking, it's cool, but it's not worth uh, an eternity, losing an eternity. So from that moment on, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And that's, that's what I'm about. I don't have a, a, a large presence on social media because I, from my journey, it helps to keep me out of trouble. The fewer people that can reach me, the better off I am with staying focused and disciplined with working on my music to yeah. give my creator his props. So any young person or, or older person that's got skill set and thinking, I want to do this, if, if you manage to get to the next level, you're going to have, things may have changed since back in the day, but you're going to have money. You're going to go uh, to places where you don't have to wait in line. You're going to go to places that after you get in that VIP room, people are going to say, hey, try some of this. Hey, what do you want? How many do you want? You'll get all of that offered to you. You might be married. You might not be. You have all this to take into consideration. And so then we're looking at what do you do with these blessings? Are you going to help bless somebody else with your blessings? Or are you just going to keep it all to yourself? And I've known of a few musicians who have great chops, but as people, they don't treat people right. I'd much re- this is a true story. I'm in the same category now that when we audition players for a band, there have been great players to come through the audition, and they don't make the cut because somebody's done the homework on the character analysis. When you go back to that band family and you're on a bus and you're in the hotel and you're in the airport, 
24-7. You want to be with people you can hang out with and be happy about. Yep. Right. So I would rather hire somebody who is not as good, but just happy and treats people right. So make sure you got your spiritual life in order so that you don't get distracted and fall off the cliff. Be nice to people. Be nice to people. God knows we need more of that these days. So inevitably, you're going to get the audition if you play well, you, you know, you concentrate on what you're doing, you're focused, which is a huge thing. But you're also nice to people and kind. Kindness will get you a long way. What we, we in the band in Lone Star, we call a good hang. You know, are they cool to hang out with or they just, you know, they just keep to themselves and they're, you know, egotistical or whatever. We like we like people that's a good hang to hang out with. And that becomes the family bond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I always knew that uh, Shania's group and her whole outfit was it seemed like that wasn't an accident because knowing Roddy Chong and how kind and how just the such an amazing person uh and yourself when i met you, you you just seem the same way you're just you. you know you uh, when i first met you you said uh, something to me like um i'm just blessed to be in what i'm doing and i'm thankful and it just to me it kind of rem- i remember what roddy chong was like and i remember i thought oh i bet all the guys in shania's band were probably chosen because they were good people you know they were just good people first i agree yeah i agree you are the groove regulator I mean, that's you didn't come by that name by accident. And what is it about a groove? What is it that makes you feel that when you're playing and you're in the moment, what is it that makes that groove, that, that, that creates that groove? What are you thinking in your mind? What I'm thinking is just relax and let the music tell you what to do, which if it says stay right here, and for those of you in Radio Lamb, my left hand is going up and down. <laughs> boom, boom, yeah. boom. Just stay right there. And like you pointed out, there, there are times for everything. If it comes time to chop, music will let you know when it's time to do that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that simple. It's a discipline at the end of the right. day. You know, Chuck Fields was saying when he was in out of high school, he was in a jazz band. Mm-hmm. And this guy mm-hmm. was playing saxophone. Older gentleman, and I can't remember who he was, but he was playing saxophone. And he looked back at some point, and of course, uh, you know, Chuck's just like play, just like jazzing and playing and adding all these licks. And finally, the guy stopped playing saxophone, looked back at him, and said, "Hey, babyface, just keep time, man. Just keep time. <laughs> just keep <laughs> he said, time." That was one of his. You know, I always ask my uh, guests, you know, what was their sort of stumbling block, any mistakes they made along the way that we could pass along. That was one that he had. He was just mm-hmm, like trying mm-hmm, to. He was trying mm-hmm, too hard, mm-hmm, playing mm-hmm, every lick mm-hmm. he knew, and he was like, "Man, I'm on stage. I'm playing jazz drums," and the guy's like, "Man, just, just, just keep time." And uh, you know, I, I always tell people that what goes through my mind, especially in the studio. Um, how do you divide your mental process when you're playing? And one thing is uh, I can definitely say is there's three main things going on in my mind. Uh, number one is uh, I'm listening to that click, and that's kind of in the back of my mind, but I'm also, am I keeping good time? Am I keeping good separations? And then there's, and then slice that pie in another, ha- another part and is part like, okay, 
I've got to know where I am in the song. I'm looking at the chart. I'm figuring, okay, there's something. I'm looking ahead. There's something coming up. There's a chorus. Yep. I need to do a big fill here, but I don't want to go crazy. I just want to announce that there's something fixing to happen. Right, right. And you're thinking of all that stuff. And then there's that other part of your mind, that slice, put another slice in that in your brain, um, that is saying, I have to be kind of creative here. I can't just play like a drum machine. I can't just go shak goon kuku goon. I gotta do something that's a little bit more than that, you know. To where people, when they listen, they go, "Oh, that was cool. That was different." So that, to me, is the three things that are kind of going on in my mind while I'm playing, say, a session or something. But of course, when you're playing live, it's different slices. There's right, like, right, am I right. visually? Am I like, oh yeah, you know, yeah. So do you have anything like that that goes through your mind when you're doing a gig or whatever? Um, in the session, uh, of course, you gather the material and uh, you suss it out. And if you're fortunate enough to be with cats that you're comfortable working with, then it makes the session that much easier. Uh, uh, for instance, I did a session with the, the late, great bassist Chris Kent, and I remember uh, Rob Magaha saying, yeah, J.D., uh, got this bass player, he's from Oregon, Chris Kent. And I'm saying to myself, okay, new bass player, here we go. Let's see what, what this is going to be about. And I left that session with such a big grin because Chris Kent, as they say, knew what time it was. Great pocket, always smiling always smiling he's just a pleasure to be around so to to leave that session and to look forward to more sessions with somebody like that it, it was uh, it was indeed a pleasure indeed a pleasure wow. it's just amazing to play with people that are in total command of their instruments yes there's just something yes. about that and they chose you because you're in total command of your instrument and I, I know a lot of times we self-doubt we go in thinking like what am i doing here why did they choose me but there's a reason why they chose you and there's a reason why they chose that other person that you admire or whatever and so just to get a group of guys like that together and make Something that has didn't exist before. Right, right. It's right, amazing. Right, it's right. just an amazing feeling. And you go back in the control room and you listen to what you just did, and you're thinking like, "Was that? Did I just play that? Was that me?" Because it sounds totally different when you're laying it down, right? You're all this like, "Oh, that that sucked. That was terrible. I was off there." But you go back and listen to it in the control room, and it was actually sounded great. And they're yes, like, "Well, that sounded great." Yes, and you're like, "Really? Yes. Yeah, that's those are really good to hold on to, man. Because yeah. then you get to move on to the next track." So what is next for you? What's coming up in the future? I know you got a new record you're working on. It's going to come out. Yes, sir. Um, I'll send you a few of the mixes uh, tonight so you can check them out and see what's going on. Uh, uh, I'm also a member of the uh, percussion fraternity, Mu Phi Sigma Incorporated. And uh, it started in 2009. Mm-hmm. And to see how it's spread across the country, uh, it's, it's about having people with the gift of music that want to enhance that gift and put back into the community. So that's been really cool. Uh, I've been enjoying uh, watching the Million Dollar Funk Squad. That's the drum line at Norfolk State really? University. And our class in 79 was recruited to rebuild that line. Like I said, I'm, I did the core background thing. Well, Norfolk State is an HBCU, so 
it was more of a show style with the dancing and the high stepping. Mm -hmm. And so Mr. Lindbergh wanted to combine those styles. That was a thought process at the time. And during my time at Norfolk State, it, it, it crept along, but we didn't get to the tonal bass drums while I was there. And I remember coming back for homecoming one year and they had the tonal bass drums and stuff. I'm a drum corps freak, I love that stuff. And to hear Norfolk State's drum line using tones, like, oh my God, why couldn't y'all have done this while I was here? And so that was really cool. Uh, I look forward to going back uh, to visit them, Lord willing, homecoming this fall. Uh, they have something called MD Thursday. It's where all the, 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 the cats who march with MD from the 70s on up to current, they come wow. back Thursday night and hang out and fellowship and watch the current year line uh, chop. So that's really cool. And, uh, yeah, we'll see uh, what Lord will in 2022 holds. I've just been holed up at the house for the past several years. Practicing you know, still? And well, I'm not, I haven't been playing drums. My passion now is sitting in front of the console and figuring out how to EQ a sound and not use or very little compression and set balances and panning. So like a mixing engineer kind I'm, of I'm in that capacity. I'm loving that because you've got control. And, I, and I'm confessing now that I've turned into a control freak because it's at the uh, DB level right. that I want and stuff has a, a, a sound shaping to way I would like for it to yeah. sound. So that's been really cool. I heard an interesting, uh, someone was saying that back in the 80s, when Quincy Jones, when the way he would tell his mix was he would turn everything down so low to where the only thing you could hear was the lead vocal and the snap of the kick drum. That was it. That was, and as long as he had that, you could turn everything else up and you could mix. And you could, that as long as the snap of the kick drum and the vocal were first and foremost, then he was happy. I get it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I get it. I get it. And thanks to YouTube. Right. Uh, because, uh, Back in the day, I was with a, a fusion funk group called Reapsodon. It's No Despair Spelled Backwards. That was oh, okay. during the Huntsville time. Uh, we were the big fish in the small pond thing. And some of the cats we talked, and I was like, man, if we had had YouTube and computer accessibility, you know, today, uh, you know, back then like we have today, ain't no telling what we could have done. So right. I'm taking advantage of the platform so that I can see what uh, great mastering engineers, what they're doing, and folks who really know how to mix what they're doing. I haven't been able to find anything on Mutt to see his uh, secrets, right, but that is, that is likely never going to happen because he's a very, very, very uh, to himself I have heard that his philosophy in mixing is that each instrument has, and everybody probably knows this, but that each instrument has its own frequency territory. Yes. And you delegate you know, this frequency to that instrument, this frequency, and you don't cross them over. You, you try to give each instrument its own space. And yes. that's, to me, when you hear a Mutt Lang record, you could tell that. You yes. Know? Very simple territory each instrument has, you know. A funny story, I'll, I'll say this now, Shep. Uh, we got to a point during the Twain sound checks where uh, it was a little... Uh, she wasn't going to be there right at the downbeat, and we started running songs. I mean, when we started our, our sound checks, we're running the show, running the show, stop and wow. start. And that would go at least two times. Really? 
So once so your sound get, checks must have dude, been hours long. Like I said, wow. that has been the most physically demanding gig I've ever done. And then to the cerebral part is that each time you play, it has a sound like the very first time that you're kicking it. So you don't have time to get tired and have an off moment. So, or sandbagging, as we call oh it. Oh, my at God. That, Someone's yeah. like, hey, man, you were saying... Because when you play at soundcheck and you lay back a little bit or you don't play it like you would during the energy of right. the show, people say you're sandbagging. Right, right, right. Well, that, that, that thing on the stage with the band... Uh, I, I took off, we stopped, and I pulled back my can, and I yelled out because I, I, I wasn't uh, mic'd. Uh, I was like, man, that sounded great. Is that a song? What are we doing? It's like, that's Hell's Bells. I was like, what? Hell's <laughs> Bells. I never heard of it. And it's like, yeah, it's ACDC. And I'm like, ACDC, what's that? And I'm not making this up. Wow. I'm not ma- I never heard of them. So the, they looked at me, and the bass player, Andy, says, J.D., uh, I'll, I'll get you a CD. I'll have it for you tomorrow. He went out and got it, and it's back in black. Okay. Back in yeah. black. And, man, I could hear now the influence of Mutt. Right. And the mm-hmm. Def Leppard and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And Twain's music. And then the way we were, we were groomed to play in that way. And yeah. so now I'm hearing all this stuff. I was like... Really, and I heard really that cool. on the Back in Black record, Mutt Lang didn't get the kind of repetition that he wanted. You know, it's like he, you know he wants the the band to play it over and over and basically rehearse all day for one song in the studio. Where ACDC was like, yeah, you know, we'll get it first couple takes. You know, but so it was his job to nail everything down when he could get it, and then it, and really the magic was in the mix, right? Well, that, I I will not say yay or nay to that because I wasn't there. All I can do is tell you from my journey, Mutlang does not get tired. Right. We put in 10 to 14 hour practice days wow. prepping for a tour. And at the end of the day, when we finally get to shut down, and this is at the very first rehearsal when we were up in this big house, we'd finish. Mutt looks just as cool and jovial at the end of the day for us than when he started. Then he goes up the steps, and then he's in the control booth for studio. Now he's working on a session track, and you see his head going left, right, left, right, in time with the music. That, that's what I see in my mind when I, I hear Mutt Lang. He's a clock, he's a perfectionist, and he doesn't get tired. Wow, that is amazing. And it's amazing that you've got to work beside him, with him, um, around him, you know. I'm so um, grateful for it. You probably, I'm sure it has affected, in a way, your, uh, not your playing, but but your, maybe your philosophy on, like when you said you're in the, you're mixing, you're learning how to mix and that kind of thing. I'm sure you've taken a lot it of It becomes from, a part of your DNA. Yeah. Everybody that I've worked with, the Take Six Cats, uh, they're uh, Stella Acapella group, and then they allowed they wanted to have a band. I was able to work with them, and sitting in the studio, their attention to detail on vocals. I wouldn't call myself a singer. They sing. I yeah. I can't sing like that. Wow, that's amazing. Well, man, it has been so cool talking to you. Um, 
I've known you for a long time, and uh, I have talked to you this much, tiny, <laughs> tiny bit, just like two conversations barely. I think I ran into you at Fork's Drum Closet one time or something. Yes, sir. Like a drum store or something. Yes, That's when sir. I first talked to you. That was like the old Fork's. Yeah, right, the old drum forks, yeah, yeah when it was yeah. in that building, and now they've On moved 12th. to it. Yeah, right, that's right. Yeah, and I remember meeting you then and uh, thought how cool of a guy you were and still are. And Blessings um, and thank you. And then that's when I heard that you uh, were working on your own material, your own yes, albums sir. and things like yes, that. Sir. I thought, man, now that's a drummer who really is taking advantage of the opportunities that God's given him and just never stopping, you know, never stop creating and... Uh, it's been great talking to you, and um, I really appreciate uh, your time and your inspiration, and thanks again. Thanks back to you. Blessings to your household and your listening audience. I'm forever grateful. All right. This has been Keith Rainwater and J.D. Blair here with Designated Drummer, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Woo-hoo. See you.